That's all we have uh, for announcements. Um, we're looking at Ruth chapter 4, starting in verse 7. And uh, let's, let's read God's word together. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon. Also, uh, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day, then, uh, you are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house, like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel, may... You act worthily in Ephrathah uh, and uh, be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar, Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you uh, for your word. And help us now as we devote our minds to study it. And that you would... Uh, pull from it treasures that would uh, lead us to the wonder of who you are, that these um, truths would build up our faith, that we would rest in your grace and in your promises to us. And Lord, you're the one who, you're the one who knows each one of us so intimately. You know the very hairs on our head. And so I pray that you would translate uh, the words uh, of this text and the words of this sermon uh, into the lives of each individual here in this uh, this morning. And so, Lord, we love you, and, and that's why we give our hearts to your word now. In Jesus' name, amen. So, one of the uh, main themes of the last chapter of the book of Ruth is the theme of redemption. And I know that the word redemption is a word that we often use in church. Maybe you've read it in the Bible, you've heard it used, you know, in a sermon, and we often use it also, you know, just in everyday life. You know, you might watch a movie and say, you know, if it had a really touching ending, you say, that movie had some really redeeming qualities to it. But what does redemption mean? What is, what is redemption? Where does that word come from? Well, it turns out uh, that word that's used often in the New Testament, talking about the gospel, it comes from the Old Testament. It's used in a number of places in the Old Testament. And this is one of them in Ruth chapter 4. And what's happening in this scene, if you're just coming in, uh, if you haven't been with us uh, the last few weeks in, this, in the story of Ruth, the story of Ruth is about these two widows who were migrating from the land of Moab uh, into the southern part of Israel, back into Judah, into the town of Bethlehem. And they, they had nothing. They were poor. And they met this bachelor, Boaz, who uh, has been very kind to them. He's been very generous with them. And what's happening in uh, this scene is that Naomi, who's the older of the two widows, the, the, she's the mother-in-law of Ruth, the other widow, um, her husband, Elimelech, owned a plot of land in Israel. And they had left to go live in Moab, and she's come back. But it turns out that in, in, the Isra 
in the laws of the Old Testament that a widow could not inherit uh, the land of her husband. It was only the children that could inherit the land. Or maybe, you know, an uncle or a brother or something like that. So she couldn't take possession of this land that that belonged to her. And actually, this wasn't a gender issue because daughters could actually inherit the land. But for some reason, the widow couldn't. And so what needed to happen in order for her to have the security of this inheritance, she needs someone to come and buy the land on her behalf and, um, and pay the debt for her to secure her inheritance and her security. And what happens in this story is Boaz comes and plays that role as the redeemer, paying her debt for her. And uh, the reason I tell you all this is because um, this theme of redemption, paying someone's debt on their behalf, you know, which also happened in slavery, so that, you know, to release slaves, that's how you'd release the slave. You'd pay their debt so they could be set free. This... A uh, theme of redemption is one of the most important concepts in understanding what it means to be a Christian. What, and, and the central belief of being a Christian, belief in the gospel. Redemption was one of the, the main, that was the language that the early Christians used to describe what, did, what was Jesus doing when Jesus came and he died on the cross? What was he doing? He was providing redemption for us. So for example, the Apostle Paul in uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, he says, in him... In Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins. And so there are many parallels between this old story in the Old Testament and the basic belief of what it means to be a Christian in the gospel. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to explore some of those parallels and let this old uh, passage from Ruth teach us the gospel. And in particular, it's going to teach us four things about what the gospel is about, which, you know, may be helpful if you're here and you're not a Christian. And this is the basic thing about what Christians believe. This is what you believe in that makes you a Christian. And in particular, in particular there are four things that we learn about, this gospel, about the gospel in this passage. At first, the gospel is about substitution. Second, that the gospel is about a relationship with God. Third, the gospel is about an inheritance. And fourth, that the gospel is for sinners. The gospel is for sinful people. Four just core things about what it means to be a Christian. The gospel is, uh, the gospel is about substitution, a relationship with God, an inheritance, and it's for sinners. Okay? So those are the four things that we're going to talk about this morning. So the first is this. The gospel is about substitution. Now, it, when I read this passage, you might have thought that was kind of an odd passage and think, you know, what is he going to say about this? Because, you know, it has a very legal tone to it. And actually, the, Ruth chapter 4 is in many ways like the transcript from, you know, a modern uh, court proceedings. You know, they write out the transcript. That's basically what we have in Ruth chapter 4 because they're having a court hearing in the gates with the elders. And it makes this point in verse 7. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. And so what's happening is it's describing a little custom that they had in ancient Israel when someone was going to redeem something, when they were going to take on the debt for something, the way that they publicly showed that was they would take off their sandal and they'd hand it to the other person. That there was an act of, I'm taking on the debt in your debt. Be- on your behalf. There's an exchange happening. And redeeming someone 
happens through someone taking the place of another, standing in their stead, and their debt being put to my account. That's how you redeem someone. And this kind of legal exchange, this legal, you know, legal transaction that happens is actually crucial for understanding the gospel because ultimately there is a legal aspect to our relationship with God. I, I know we often don't like to talk about that that much, but as you, the Bible says that a real fundamental part of our humanity is that each one of us will stand before God and give an account for the life we've lived in the body. And, you know, the scene of that accounting is very legal, right? There's God is a judge, and he has laws that uh, we have broken those laws. And, you know, so we owe a debt. We have accrued a debt, um, and God's justice demands that our sins be paid for. And what will either happen is that they will be paid for by us, our sins will be paid for to God by us, or a redeemer who comes in our place and our, pays our debt for us. And this is what Jesus dying on the cross is all about. He was paying the debt for our sins by dying on the cross for us. And I, you know, I put on page three of your bulletin, if you just turn there, I, I put a little passage from the epic poem Paradise Lost. And if you're not a poetry person, you're going to just have to bear with me for a moment. Maybe you'll become a poetry person for, uh, right now. Uh, but... Um, Paradise Lost is this uh, epic poem is written in, I think, the 17th century, John Milton. And uh, if you haven't read Paradise Lost, how the story goes, it's the story of how humanity fell out of relationship with God, about how Adam, it, Satan tempted Adam and Eve and they fell. And how Paradise Lost begins is in the first two books of Paradise Lost, it starts in hell, and Satan is in hell in the lake of fire. And he's kind of swimming around in the lake of fire, and he lifts up his head, and he starts talking to the other demons that are in hell with him. And they start making this plan about how they're going to get revenge against heaven because God had cast them out of heaven down into hell. And so they have this great council with all these gods and demons that have been cast into hell and making a plan and all, everyone has their suggestions. And so Satan finally says, you know, God has made this new world that he loves and he's made these humans that he loves. And the way we'll get revenge is by um, ruining this new world that he's made that he loves. And so they make this plan, and and, uh, Satan then leaves hell, and he goes on this long journey across the chasm from hell to earth. And uh, and that's how book two ends, is he's starting this chasm to go to earth. And then in book three, the scene changes, and it goes up into heaven. And now it's in heaven, and it's God the Father and God the Son are sitting on their thrones, and there's just these thousands and thousands of angels in this heavenly court. And they're watching... Satan do his plan. And it's like they've been listening to the whole thing. And God says, I know what's going to happen. He's going to go and he's going to tempt humanity and they're going to fall and they're going to turn against God and, and death is going to come upon them and they're going to ruin all things. And it's right there in this heavenly court while, while God the Father is talking that we pick up in this quote and just follow along with me. It's really, it's, it's wonderful little passage. Die he or justice must. He's saying that humanity must die for their sins or, or God would not be just, right? Die here, justice must, unless for him some other able and as willing pay the rigid satisfaction death for death. Say, heavenly powers, where shall we find such love? Which of ye will be mortal to redeem man's mortal crime? 
and just, the unjust to save. Dwells in all heaven charity so dear? He asked. But all the heavenly choir stood mute, and silence was in heaven. On man's behalf, patron or intercessor, none appeared, much less that durst upon his own head draw the deadly forfeiture and ransom set. And now, without redemption, all mankind must have been lost, adjudged to death in hell by doom severe, had not the Son of God, in whom the fullness dwells of love divine, his dearest meditation thus renewed. Father, thy word is past. Man shall find grace. And shall grace not find means that finds her way? Behold me then. Me for him, life for life I offer. On me let thine anger fall. Account me man. I for his sake will leave thy bosom and this glory next to thee freely put off and for him lastly die well pleased. On me let death wreck all his rage. What's so beautiful about the passage, what you hear over and over again is the language of substitution, right? Me for him, life for life, account me man. And that's what Jesus dying on the cross is all about, is the Son of God coming and taking our debt in our place. And I just want to say, you know, one thing, to just be real clear. The Bible says that when we stand before God, whatever pile of good works we think we may have accrued in our life of good things, it is, never even, it is never enough even close to pay the debt for the sins that we live in our life. And so we will stand before God either with our good works or with Jesus' good works accounted to us on our behalf. And um, what that means then is that we here as a group of people, as Christians, we are not here because we are, we are a bunch of people who want to be good people together. We are a collection of sinners who have come together and said we couldn't pay our debt. And yet God has provided a substitute. We are sinners who have been saved by grace. And that is the thing that we boast in. That's the thing that we take pride in. That's the thing that we sing about. Is that I was a sinner who was saved by grace, by free grace. Jesus paid my debt. I deserved hell. And let me just ask you, when someone makes that the centerpiece of the what happens when you make that the centerpiece of your life? that I deserve to be judged by God, and yet Jesus took my debt. Well, the first thing, it means that there can't be any arrogance in me. I mean, I can't look down on other people and say, aren't I so righteous and they're such a sinner? No, I deserve to go to hell and Jesus took my place. I can't. I, it creates a meekness and a humility in me. And it also creates a generosity. If God has been so generous to pay my full debt at the cost of the life of his own son, if he's been so open-handed with me, how can I not be open-handed with other people? And I have to be forgiving. God has forgiven a whole mass of debt, of sin that I owe to him. He's really forgiven it and taken it away. I have to forgive other people. And it makes me hopeful, right? The, you know, Romans says that, uh, that it, you know, if God didn't even spare his own son, how, how will he not also give us all things? If God would give us, pay that whole debt for us, he must have worlds in store for me ahead that will continue to flow to me. I'm a loved person. 
And that's what happens when you make the gospel, this substitution, the centerpiece in your life. It produces all of these things in your heart. And when we say that, you know, that, that begins to touch on the second thing. Because, you know, for many of us, when we talk about the legal aspect of the gospel, that, you know, God is a judge and there's laws and there's an accounting going on, there's something in us that says, you know, it's kind of impersonal. And that's really true because actually the next part of the gospel is not just that the gospel is about God providing a substitute for us, but the second thing is also that the gospel is about a relationship with God. What God is bringing us into is a relationship with him. And, you know, it's interesting. So in this passage, Boaz becomes, the, the, you know, this substitute, this redeemer. He takes on the debt of Naomi and Ruth so that their inheritance is secured to them. And, but does he just do a nice thing for them and then say, hey, you know, you guys need some help. I'll help you out. I got some money. I can, I can provide this for you. Is that all he does? No, he doesn't. Look at what it says, verse 10. Also, this is what he says, also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of uh, Malon, I have bought to be my wife. He's done the exchange, he's paid the debt in order to be bound to Ruth, in order to spend a life with her, an ongoing relationship. He wants to actually, he says, he wants to start a family with her. He wants to have children and share in that life. He wants to be joined to her. He wants a relationship. Actually, you know, it's an interesting thing about the book of Ruth. In, in our English Bibles, the book of Ruth comes in the historical books. It's part of the history of Israel. It comes between the book of Judges and the book of First Samuel. But in the Hebrew Bible, actually, Ruth comes in the wisdom literature. And it comes in between the book of Proverbs and the book of Song of Songs. And if you've ever read the book of Proverbs, how does the book of Proverbs end? Does anyone know that? You know the Proverbs 31 woman? There's this woman, this description of the excellent wife, this woman who, you know, cares for the poor and she clothes her children and she laughs at the days ahead and she's got wisdom on her lips and stuff. It's just beautiful picture of this excellent wife. And, uh, and of, you know, actually if you read all those things, and it is, it's a really, you know, challenging thing for any woman to read, but ultimately you say, you know, I don't think any woman can actually do all these things. This is really ultimately describing the great wife of the excellent man, who is Jesus, which is the church. The church is the Proverbs 31 woman who cares for the poor and speaks wisdom and, uh, and you know, clothes her children and feeds everyone. And, and, then, and, and then Ruth comes right after that. So you read the Proverbs 31 woman, you keep reading, and you're like, oh, here's Ruth. And she's like the Proverbs 31 woman. And then you read into the Song of Psalms, which is this description of a love relationship between these two people who have fallen in love. And the, the church has always said that ultimately the Song of Songs is this picture of Jesus and his bride who have fallen in love with each other. And that the church is the bride of Christ. We are Ruth in this story, the one who's been redeemed. And Jesus is the Boaz who's bound himself to us because he wants to spend his life with us. He wants to share his life with us and bring us into relationship. And so being a Christian is not simply about believing certain doctrines or joining a religion. It is about coming to know, love, and trust God personally. That's the question for us. Do you know God? Do you talk to Him? Do you trust Him? Do you listen to Him? Do you walk with Him? 
This is what God wants to bring us into in the gospel. It's not just a legal transaction, but intimacy, trust, and love. And, you know, most of us know that, uh, you know, the most important things in our lives are our relationships. And what Christians have always said is, yes, relationships are the most important things in your life, and the most important relationship is with your creator who invented you. He, you know, is gave you existence, that's the most important relationship that you should have in your life. Now, some people would say to that, I have a relationship with God. I talk to him. I believe in him. I don't necessarily believe in the Bible or in Jesus. And I don't necessarily understand why is it so necessary that in order to have a relationship with God, I have to go through Jesus. Why can't I just kind of have a straight shot at him, a direct shot? Why do I need to complicate it with this you know, all these things that the Bible says and who Jesus is and, and all these things. Why do I, it seems so narrow. Why can't I just have a broad relationship with God? Well, the answer to that, of course, is that anyone who's been in a relationship before knows that in relationships, you can't impose on the other person who you want them to be. And anytime you do that, it's actually not a relationship. You're not close to that person. Right? You know, if you do that in a marriage or you do that in a friendship, you have all these ideas of who you want that person to be and you impose it on them, um, you're, you're actually not having a relationship with that person. You're not embracing them for who they are. And when we say that, you know, I have a direct shot to God, I don't need to go through Jesus, we're actually just imposing on God all the things we want him to be. Because when we go that way, does he ever challenge us? Does the God that, we, that doesn't go through the Bible and doesn't go through Jesus, does the God that we just, uh, just have a direct relationship, does he say things that are uncomfortable to us? Does he challenge us? Is he different than we thought we would be? All people have certain quirks to them that you have to deal with and you have to wrestle with. And that's how God is too. And God says, you want to know me, you know me in Jesus. Jesus is who I am. Jesus is my ideas. Jesus is my opinions. Jesus is my love. And so you want to know me, you need to look at Christ, who is God coming to us and revealing who he is and to have a relationship with him. And um, in the gospel, we are joined to God who has told us who he is in the Bible, the passionate, fierce, beautiful, loving maker of all things. And so, so far, what we see in this passage, what is the gospel about? Well, first of all, it's about this substitution, about God dealing with the debt of our sin. But then secondly, the gospel is about us having a relationship with God. But the early Christians, when they talked about that word, the gospel, there was another aspect that was always lingering in their mind. And they're actually not even lingering, forefront in their mind. And this is the third thing about the gospel that we see in this passage, is that the gospel is about an inheritance. The gospel is about an inheritance. And, uh, you know, inheritance, of course, is an important part of this passage. Um, if you look at verse 9 with me. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon, and also Ruth the Moabite, a widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate from among his brothers and from the gate of his uh, native place. Now what this passage is talking about is about this possession that Elimelech had. Elimelech was Naomi's husband. And what this possession was, 
was, and, and he did, both of his sons had died, so they couldn't take this inheritance that was his. And this inheritance was primarily a piece of land. And because if you know the, the story of the Old Testament, what, the, what happened in ancient Israel was the Israelites were slaves in Egypt, and God liberated them from Israel, and he brought them out of Israel through, uh, through the desert. And where did he bring them? Into the promised land. And everyone in Israel got this little chunk of land, a plot of land that was their inheritance. And they were supposed to hold on to this inheritance. And, you know, I'll tell you, when I, when I first became a Christian, I began reading through the Bible. Maybe some of you have had this experience. Um, I was reading through the Old Testament, and it would, all the promises of the Old Testament were all about things like land and crops and having babies and all these things. And then you come to the New Testament, and it had all these spiritual promises, right, about eternal life, and, you know, being with God forever, going to heaven or something, you know, God's heavenly kingdom. And I was always like, how does, how does land and crops and babies compare to eternal life? I mean, why doesn't the Old Testament talk about this, these eternal promises, these spiritual promises? And it actually wasn't until I, I went to seminary and it occurred to me that the whole Old Testament is talking about very earthly things. Because the inheritance, the eternal inheritance that we have as Christians is actually a physical, earthly thing as well. Because what happens when Jesus dies on the cross, what happens next? His body is raised from the dead. His physical body. And early Christians were insistent upon that. You know, they said that he went and he ate fish and things like that. He, it was a, there was a physical resurrection that had happened to him. And what his body was, when Jesus' body was raised from the dead, it was, a, it was the beginning, a foretaste of what God intended to do to his whole creation, to heal the whole creation that had been ruined by sin. And so that the hope for a Christian, what it means as a Christian, when we say that we have an inheritance, it's not just a spiritual thing that we're going to float off kind of to the netherworld and live in the clouds forever and ever. It's that there is... Um, God is giving, you know, as Jesus said, the meek shall inherit the earth. And what that means is that when Jesus comes back, God is going to come and cleanse the world of all evil, of all death, and all sorrow will flee away. And that we, what God did for Jesus when he raised his body from the dead, he is going to do for us to raise our bodies to indestructible eternal life, where we will live physical existence in a new creation, in the very presence of God. There is a physicality to it. It is an inheritance of the earth. And this is, this is really, and maybe you've heard that before. You know, if, you're, uh, if you've been in the church for a long time, you say, yeah, I know I'm going to have an eternal life, and it kind of begins to drone and lose its kind of imag you know, imaginative power. Living in physical bodies in a world in God's presence forever and ever, that's really on offer, yes. And all and all our sickness and all our sorrow and every tear will be taken away and we will have joy supreme. This is what's being offered in the gospel. Incredible. That God would first say, okay, we're sinners, you have this big pile of debt, I'm going to pay for it in Jesus. And then I'm not just going to do a nice thing for you and keep you at a distance, I'm going to bring you close to me and have a relationship with you. And I want to know you and I want you to trust in me. And, and then not only that, I'm going to secure an eternal inheritance where you will live with me uh, forever and ever in a physical earth, enjoying the pleasures and wonders of, of God's creation in his presence, singing his praises with joy in your heart and love bursting and flowing over.
That's what I want to give you. That's what the hope of the gospel is. It is absolutely incredible. Now, and let me just say this. There's nothing like that in the world. There is nothing else like that, anything remotely like what Jesus offers us anywhere in the world. Now, the question we might ask is, okay, well, what kind of person gets that? Their debt paid for, close intimacy, friendship with God, and an eternal inheritance. What, what kind, who, who's God giving that to? How, how could I know whether I could have something like that? Well, this is the fourth thing that we learn in this passage, is that also the gospel is for sinners. This gift God is giving to sinful people, that's who he wants to give it to. It's incredible. Uh, you know, this passage ends with kind of a celebratory note that's really interesting. Verse 11. Then all the people were at the gate, and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the, women, the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah, uh, and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of, now listen to this, Perez, the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Now you may not be familiar with those names. Those names come from uh, Genesis 38, which is kind of one of the most glaring scandals in uh, the life of God's people in the Old Testament is the story of Tamar and Judah, where Tamar was uh, Judah's daughter-in-law whose husband had died, and Judah had not given Tamar uh, his other son to marry her. And so you know what she does is she dresses up like a prostitute and tricks Judah into sleeping with her, and she gets pregnant. And then Judah says, this woman got pregnant, she should be burned. And then she says, well, actually, surprise everyone, you're the one who got me pregnant. He's like, oh, whoopsie daisies. And, you know, all of a sudden, he's cut to the heart, and he uh, and he's realizes how sinful he is. And it is just a mess of a family. You have, uh, you know, Tamar, who's this kind of outcast of a woman. You have Judah, who's this deeply sinful man. And you have Perez, who's got this incredibly broken family heritage. And they're saying, may you be like them. Because even though they were profoundly sinful, God had chosen them and said, I want you to be my people. And my promises are going to go through you. And what that means is that as we come here and we think whatever sins there may be in our life that may keep us from the promise of the gospel, the promise from Jesus paying my debt or God having a relationship with me or that inheritance, you need to know that God knows your sins. He knows your hidden sins and secret sins. The ones that no one else knows about, he knows them. And he knows the sins that you don't even know are sins yet. The sins that you don't even know about. He knows them all, and yet he wants this gift to be for you. And so our calling this morning as we hear the gospel is to receive, is simply to receive the gift. You can't work for it. You can't earn it. You can embrace it by faith, and it is yours in Jesus. Will you have the courage to soften your heart, to humble yourself, to receive what God wants to give you this morning? Let's pray together. Our Lord, uh, we thank you that your word is so rich with your grace. Lord, we pray that you would give us hearts to really believe the gospel and that all these wonders are uh, for sinners.
like us. May we turn from our isolation and our sin, and may we turn to you. Give us the humility, the softness of heart, the faith to really believe that there is a God in heaven who can be this good. I pray for those who are here uh, who do not know you. I pray you would give them faith. As Jesus said, uh, uh, no one can come to you unless the Father draws him. Draw us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.